welcome to the NASGP podcast, The Art of GP Locuming. And this month, we're delighted to bring you a talk from Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald of Heartburn Cancer UK with a fascinating talk on esophageal cancer and what GPs need to know. During the podcast, Rebecca will mention some slides that she was presenting on screen at the time, and you can view these and watch the talk on our YouTube channel. But there's an awful lot you can take away from just listening to this audio, so we wanted to bring this to you as well. So without any further ado, let's listen to Rebecca now. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to the June uh, 2023 talk, uh, which we're delighted today to be uh, brought to you by uh, Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald, uh, and it's on uh, an update on Barrett's esophagus and esophageal cancer uh, from the um, UK Heartburn Cancer UK charity. So thank you very much, Rebecca, for joining us, and uh, I'll, I'll hand over to you now. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here and to update you on esophageal cancer. Um, I'm a gastroenterologist in terms of my clinical background. Um, I work with a multidisciplinary team of surgeons and oncologists, and I liaise with all my oncology consultants to really get uh, the key highlights that he felt as an oncologist you should all be updated on as well from a GP perspective. So I'm going to take us on the whole journey from diagnosis through to treatment. Um, and my particular interest and that of the charity Heartburn Cancer UK is in early diagnosis. So I'll also particularly focus on that aspect, which I think is a really critical one for improving outcomes from this cancer. I should just tell you my disclosures because I've developed a new diagnostic test um, that's all about cytosponge. Um, so I'll be talking about that as we go through. So this is my talk overview. Um, a reminder of why this is such an important cancer and why Barrett's esophagus is an opportunity to improve outcomes. Um, who should be referred for endoscopy? What's the current state of the art for workup and treatment for esophageal cancer? Um, then a bit about Barrett's. What does the diagnosis of Barrett's mean? When does it matter? And then what's coming on stream for earlier diagnosis and how might you be involved as a GP? Um, what I'm going to say is mainly around esophageal adenocarcinoma, but really most of it is broadly applicable to all types of esophageal cancer because our treatment pathways, although there are some subtle differences, um, the basic principles are the same. So this is um, what's been happening to the incidence of esophageal cancer over the past 30 or 40 years. And you'll see that um, this is adenocarcinoma has shown a really striking increase over that time, especially when we compare it to the incidence of other cancer types. We still don't fully understand um, what is responsible for those incidence trends. We know that chronic heartburn and reflux symptoms are a major risk factors. And our diet is almost certainly important, but of course diet is difficult to measure. And we know that obesity is a risk factor. So Western diets, fast food, eating late at night, obesity, all things that in, uh, cause increase in, in heartburn and reflux are probably at least to some extent responsible. We also know that Helicobacter pylori is um, somewhat of a protective factor, and we've been busy eradicating H. pylori, so that may also play into this increase in incidence. Um, if we look at the projections then to 2040, this is for esophageal adenocarcinoma and esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. So those are the two major types of esophageal cancer. You'll see that unfortunately the incidence is projected to rise for both types. Now on a global scale, esophageal squamous cancer is more common, um, particularly in Asia, and along the Caspian belt. And so that accounts for a big increase in these, in these uh, numbers. Um, but adenocarcinoma is also projected to continue to increase. 
So although the absolute numbers in the UK um, are not huge, about 14,000 cases of cancer a year, it's not rare and it's going to get more common. So certainly one to be aware of as a GP. So what are the current status of esophageal cancer outcomes in the UK? This is from the last published annual report from the National Esophagogastric Cancer Audit, just to give an overview of some of the statistics. Um, and this is from their nice infographic, which I think sh shows some really helpful highlights. So this is combining esophageal and stomach cancer. But I just wanted to highlight to you that um, if we look at the routes to diagnosis, for both of, both of these cancer types, we still see 10% um, or more coming through emergency admissions. And we know that outcomes are very poor for patients who present with an emergency admission through A&E. In terms of waiting times, so we know that we need room for improvement in terms of waiting times. So 53% of patients diagnosed after an urgent GP referral are currently waiting more than 62 days from referral to first treatment. Absolutely not acceptable. Um, and 20% waiting 104 days. Now, of course, this did uh, this time period would have been around COVID, so um, hopefully that's improved. But still, we know and we work very hard in our multidisciplinary teams to improve these waiting times. The outcomes from patients uh, fortunate enough to go down a curative pathway because they've been diagnosed early enough, we know that our outcomes from curative, curative surgery have improved substantially. And the 90-day mortality from esophagectomy, which is a massive operation, is 3.6%. And the aim nationally was to get that lower than 5%. So I think that's really good progress. Um, the other thing to point out here is the proportion of patients diagnosed with advanced disease. So unfortunately, 44.9% of patients with esophageal cancer present with stage four. So that's metastatic disease. And the outcomes from these patients uh, at such an advanced stage are really poor. So if we look at those people going down a curative pathway, so that's patients generally stage three, 83% will survive at least one year after surgery. So that's even having to gone through all of their chemotherapy and surgery. The majority is surviving, but some won't even last a year. If we look at the overall five-year statistics for all comers, so that includes all stages, is 10% at five years. So this is a very poor outcome cancer. Um, but the survival is starkly different depending on the stage at which you present. So early diagnosis means far improved survival. And that, if you remember nothing else from this talk, that is the one absolute key take home message. So how do we diagnose esophageal cancer at an earlier stage? So I think there are three opportunities. The first is symptomatic referrals for patients certainly with alarm symptoms, but also those with persistent heartburn that isn't responding to your usual medical management. The second is pro being proactive. Um, and this is a very hot topic at the moment about whether we should be doing more proactive screening. There isn't a um, national screening program currently for Barrett's esophagus. I'll tell you where we're up to with that. But if you have patients seeing you who've really got persistent heartburn, particularly if they've got a, another risk factor like obesity or family history, then being proactive to see if they've got Barrett's is a good thing to think about. And then when Barrett's is diagnosed, that's the opportunity we've got to monitor and try and intervene before they develop cancer. So that's when Barrett's surveillance comes in. So these are all areas I'm going to talk about during the talk. So the gold standard diagnostic test for patients with alarm symptoms is endoscopy. No room for barium meals anymore, barium swallows. Endoscopy is the gold standard test. 
So who should be referred for urgent direct access, two-week wait referral for endoscopy? This is to look for esophageal or stomach cancer. So anyone with dysphagia. So dysphagia, difficulty in swallowing, that's not just a feeling of a lump in a throat, but food actually getting caught or stuck as it goes down the esophagus. Um, it's usually progressive, so it gradually gets worse as that lump increases. But anyone who has got dysphagia that they haven't had before to solids, it can just be, you know, having their Sunday lunch, for example, and it may have happened two or three times, I would still trigger an endoscopy for those patients. Don't wait for it to get bad. Dysphagia is not a normal symptom. Anyone aged 55 and over, and we could debate the age, but that's the current guidance with, with weight loss and any of the following, upper abdominal pain, reflux, dyspepsia, um, then they should be referred as well. Anemia is also a worrying sign. So if they've got anemia, then be thinking about endoscopy. Of course, that can be from a lower or an upper GI cause. And um, as gastroenterologists in the service, we would look at the top and the uh, bottom end. So um, this is quite old data now, but I showed this just because I think um, it really was a very important study. And um, I would hope it's better now. Um, but I think we should just be reminded. So this shows the um, how the outcomes for endoscopy vary according to the GP threshold for referral. So this was a um, study done by Keith Bodger looking across um, GP surgeries in England and looking at the gastroscopy rates grouped into turtiles. So those with a low threshold for endoscopy, the middle turtile and a, and a high turtile. So um, the patients, the, the GP surgeries that tended to be very cautious or um, have a high threshold for referral for endoscopy in the low turtile, and they tend to have a higher proportion of emergency admissions leading to a diagnosis of esophageal cancer. And, and as you would expect, a lower proportion going for um, curative pathway because they get a higher rate of advanced cancers and the mortality is higher. Whereas those GPs with a lower threshold for referral tend to do better in terms of proportion of patients going down a curative pathway and surviving. Now, of course, it, it's tricky, you know, getting that sweet spot right for who you refer, because if you refer everybody, of course, we just block up the service um, and that's not what we want to do. But I think applying those criteria we've just talked about and then making sure, especially if you've got dysphagia or weight loss, that you trigger an endoscopy is absolutely appropriate. And then we'll get more people going down a curative pathway. So um, what? how does the diagnosis and staging work? In a nutshell, um, endoscopy is a gold standard and a biopsy is essential. All patients with something, someone, something seen on endoscopy will have a biopsy. Um, and the recommendation is to take four to six biopsies because it can be heterogeneous, looking for evidence of cancer, which will also be graded um, based on the pathological findings, and they'll tell you whether it's adeno or squamous cell carcinoma. And then the staging that we do, the, the mainstay of staging is CT and PET scanning, um, and we generally do both. Endoscopic ultrasound is much less common now than it used to be because it's been realised that it was causing a delay or prolongation of the pathway, and usually it doesn't really make a difference to the recommendation. Sometimes we still use it if we're not quite sure whether it's a T1 or a T2 stage cancer. If the junction and the stomach is involved, then the patients will um, generally be offered a laparoscopy if we think they should be going down a curative pathway. And at every stage, assessment of patient fitness is absolutely paramount. 
this disease, the average age is patients in their um, late 60s and 70s, often with multimorbidity. And so we need to make sure that if we're putting them through all these tests, we think it's going to make a difference in terms of the treatment that they will have. So this is the staging algorithm, the tumor um, node status and metastasis status for esophageal cancer. Um, there are a number of different T stages. Um, and what we want to really be doing is diagnosing it within stage one in order to avoid systemic chemotherapy and put them down a curative endoscopic um, or surgery-only pathway. By the time we get to stage T2, there are nearly always nodes involved. And even if we can't see the nodes, generally speaking, we'll assume there are nodes involved and at T2 we'll offer chemotherapy. Um, what converts it to incurable is um, metastatic disease, either distant nodes or um, metastases in other organ sites, liver and lungs particularly. Now you'll see on the bottom that the um, treatment algorithms and the survival rates are very stage dependent and the T stage is the all important thing. So as I said, we want to get them at stage T1 where we can have a very good chance of a cure. If it's stage two or more, 40% alive at five years if, it's, if they're going down a curative pathway. And too many of our patients present with distant metastases with rather poor outcomes, although we have a bit more to offer them now than we used to. So this is just looking at that um, in another way to really look at, um, highlight the differences in treatment depending on stage. So early cancer, it's extraordinary that the treatment is so straightforward these days. This didn't used to be the case. Even with early stage cancer, when I was first practicing, we were um, still having to offer esophagectomy, but now we can do very effective endoscopic therapy um, and that's microsurgery down the endoscope called endoscopic mucosal resection, EMR, sometimes sub down to the submucosa called endoscopic submucosal dissection. Um, and often we combine that with some ablative therapy to get rid of any precancer. Um, so that's all endoscopic therapy, outpatient day case procedure with excellent results. Um, on a curative pathway, but more advanced, then we're looking at combinations of therapy and metastatic disease, and we're really looking at symptom control. Um, and I'll go into these in a little bit more detail. So we have a multidisciplinary team um, meeting, and this is across the UK for all patients with esophageal cancer. It's a supra-regional supra multidisciplinary team because it's not such a common cancer, and we know that, that you really need experts. So um, in the Eastern region, I chair our SMDT, and we take in patients from the whole of the region, and we discuss, we go through the hospitals, discuss each patient in turn. And um, we discuss the tumor stage in detail to really make sure we've got that right. Um, we're starting to take into account more the molecular characteristics, particularly in the palliative setting where we've got more targeted therapies available. Um, but this still lags behind what you'll be familiar with in lung, colon and breast cancer. Um, but it is coming. And patient fitness, as I've already said, is absolutely key. Um, and we, of course, want to take into account the patient choice as well. But the patients aren't present at the MDT, which is a pretty fast and furious case discussion. But um, the patient choice will come into that decision making and ultimately, of course, lie with the patient and their clinician. Um, just wanted to give you an, an, an idea of the sorts of things we're now able to see down the endoscope that's early disease. The example I picked here was for early squamous cancer, because for most of the talk, I'm going to focus on Adeno and Barrett. So I thought it'd just be nice to give a taste of squamous cancer in this example. 
So we get very high resolution images now down the endoscope. So we can really look in great detail for quite subtle lesions. So I hope you can see from the arrowheads in this first panel, this is a white light image. So this is looking down the endoscope with the normal white light view. And we can zoom in and out and we can look for changes in coloration, slight um, areas standing proud of the mucosa that suggest there may be something going on. And then we can go to a um, narrow band imaging, which alters the wavelengths of light we're using. And we can start to look more at the blood vessel patterns um, and different uh, color changes again. Um, in panel C, we've really zoomed in on this area that we're worried about using the narrowband imaging still to see the difference is in the blood vessel patterns. And then we can mark the area that we're going to remove down the endoscope using endoscopic mucosal resection. So this patient then had that area removed. Um, we then send it to the pathologist so that we can get an accurate idea of the depth of the lesion. And on this example, um, we could stage this as a what we call a PT1A. So it's been removed. That's what the P is pathological stage, T1 just down to the mucosa, and this should be a completely curative resection. So I think, um, you know, our endoscopic technologies have really helped us treat early stage disease. So that's very good news. So um, the treatment pathways are quite complex algorithms. Um, I don't think we need to get too bogged down in the detail. But the staging will dictate whether they can go down a curative pathway. And if we feel it's localized, then we have options depending on how early it is. And also whether we think it's a squamous cell carcinoma, OSCC, or an adenocarcinoma. So um, squamous cell carcinoma patients will be offered definitive chemo, chemo radiotherapy um, if we want to avoid surgery or a combination with um, what we call triple therapy. So they'll have chemo, radiotherapy and surgery. So you can imagine you have to be quite fit to get through that kind of treatment algorithm. Similarly for the adenocarcinoma. So we'll take into account very much the patient fitness for treatment, whether they could cope with an esophagectomy, um, their preference. Um, we know that squamous cell carcinoma is, is um, a little bit more radiosensitive, but we do sometimes use radiotherapy for adenocarcinoma as well. Um, so I liaised with the oncologist, um, Chris Jones, just to say, you know, what, what would he as an oncologist think that GPs should be um, really aware of? Um, so just some things to highlight, because these algorithms do get quite um, complicated. But the, the chemotherapy regime that we use now for this cancer has changed to um, FLOT. Um, it used to be um, ECX. Um, so it's a slightly different combination with a taxane. And I'm pleased to say that the responses to this chemotherapy regime are better than with the previous regime. It is quite tough chemotherapy to get through. The other thing that's changed is that this is now licensed by NICE. If after patients have had their chemotherapy and surgery, we think there's residual disease at the time of surgery, we now are able to give immunotherapy, which is very well tolerated and is improving responses um, as well in that particular scenario. Um, sometimes if patients aren't fit for surgery or chemotherapy, we may use radiotherapy alone, usually aiming to control the disease rather than eradicate it. Um, 
So it's a very similar kind of regime for squamous cell carcinoma. I haven't um, put a slide on that because I didn't want to get uh, spend too long, but I think the general principles still apply. What about management of metastatic disease? Well, this is evolving and we're gradually getting more targeted therapies available. So um, this is really pleasing and this has changed um, in the last couple of years. We now got options of immunotherapy, biologics based on the profile of the tumor like HER2 targeting. We do sometimes use cytotoxic chemotherapy if the patient's well enough or radiotherapy, particularly for symptom control if we want to help their swallowing. With radiotherapy, often the swallowing will get a bit worse before it gets better. So we may need um, tube feeding to kind of cover the patient while they're having the therapy. Actually, in my clinic yesterday, I saw a 93-year-old lady um, who'd had radiotherapy for a squamous cell carcinoma um, 13 years ago. And um, she's done very well since it's just starting to come back. And we were just talking about some dietary measures to help her. But it can be a really helpful um, regime, particularly in the elderly. Um, for patients with three or up to five metastases, then um, in some diseases, particularly colon, that's still considered potentially curable, but not in the esophagus, unfortunately. Um, but we will maximize local control. Um, and there are opportunities for using high-dose radiotherapy um, for brain metastases and sometimes for body radiation as well. So I think more options than we used to have. Um, and still, if the patient um, really swallowing is their main issue and they're not fit for these other therapies, then a stent can be very useful in esophageal stent. So the core treatment principles, so this is a slide from um, Chris Jones, is um, obviously the holistic multidisciplinary care. Um, so all patients have a named specialist nurse um, and you'll be familiar with Maggie's centers um, and the Macmillan Cancer Navigator for managing financial impacts, really helpful. And the details are on the slide. Um, the sorts of um, issues that patients come across during their treatment, particularly with the chemotherapy is infections. Um, neutropenia obviously is very important to manage very promptly. Um, and it's very much a partnership with primary care. Um, patients are at risk of venous thromboembolism during their chemotherapy surgery. So that's something else to watch out for. Um, and uh, we do now recommend DOAX um, in the cancer setting. Um, symptom management, dexamethasone can be useful to relieve pressure symptoms and using radiotherapy for palliative symptom management as well. We are aware that um, once patients get through all this very intense treatment, that after discharge, patients can feel rather kind of alone. And I think there's a lot of improvement we need to do for survivorship and rehabilitation, but obviously with limited resources that we have available to us all. So I want to go now back a bit earlier into the pathogenesis and talk more about Barrett's um, and new tests coming on stream for earlier diagnosis. So what does the diagnosis of Barrett's mean and um, when does it matter? So Barrett's esophagus, um, this is an example here looking down the endoscope. This is a fairly obvious long segment Barrett's. Barrett's can be anything from a centimetre to 15 or more centimetres. Um, and so when it's very short, it can be subtle and there's measurement error. At endoscopy, the um, esophagus is peristalsing, the patient position will vary a bit. Um, the heart is obviously beating, so that will also affect your measurement. So if the segment is very, very short, one centimetre, that's why sometimes you'll find patients 
I've got a Barrett's esophagus diagnosis one year and then some sometimes a year later people say well actually I don't think there is any Barrett's there it's just a hiatus hernia so when it's short it can be tricky um and it's a combination of the endoscopic diagnosis and a biopsy the biopsy needs to show columnar epithelium and usually it has these pathonomic goblet cells um, and that's when we call it intestinal metaplasia so who's at risk for Barrett's so reflux so heartburn symptoms um, are the strong, strongest risk factor. Um, but there are other risk factors which will then, um, when you add them together, really increase the chances of you having Barrett's esophagus. So this was a um, meta-analysis of over 300,000 individuals. If you've got just reflux symptoms, then your risk of Barrett's is around 3%. If you're over 50, 6%, male sex, 7%. And if you add these together, reflux, GERD, plus one risk factor, then prevalence up around 12%. So if you're over 50 with reflux, um, you know, that really puts your risk of Barrett's up. Family history is a very strong predictor, but not very common. So when it's there, it's helpful. So what do the current society guidelines say about Barrett's screening? So we don't have a national screening service, but all the society guidelines um, our British ones are here, the BSG. They were last updated 2014, so due another risk uh, update. But basically, they all agree that if you have a reflux history, plus um, in, the, in the British ones, three or more risk factors as listed there, then it, it would be um, worth considering a screening test for Barrett's esophagus. So if the patients comes to see you um, with reflux and they have these other risk factors, then that's something to think about. Of course, the important point about Barrett's is the um, risk of cancer. And that's what patients are very worried about. But the key take home here is that most patients with Barrett's won't get cancer. But as we were talking about in the first part of the talk, a diagnosis of esophageal adenocarcinoma is a pretty serious and awful diagnosis with poor outcomes. So that's why we take Barrett's esophagus seriously, because we know we can be so preemptive with our extra endoscopic treatments. So it's this sweet spot between reassuring patients that actually if they've got a diagnosis of Barrett's, the chances of it progressing are low. But the good thing is we can keep an eye on it so we can intervene if it does progress. So I've shown you the progression statistics um, down here. At the point at which you have dysplasia, the risk of progression substantially increases. So if there's no dysplasia, the risk is about one in 300 patients per year. Once you've got dysplasia, that risk substantially increases up as high as 20% for high grade. So we now intervene with anyone who has dysplasia confirmed at endoscopy because the treatment is pretty straightforward. So for high grade, one diagnosis of higher grade is enough for treatment. For low grade, we confirm it a second time because of subjectivity in the diagnosis. And then if it's confirmed, we would treat it. And we discuss all dysplasia at the multidisciplinary team meeting. So patients may ask you, what can I do to reduce the cancer risk? Does taking proton pump inhibitors or aspirin help? So this is a bit controversial. The retrospective studies show that PPI therapy does reduce the risk of cancer progression. We've got one large randomized trial, which was the ASPECT trial. Which, which is kind of controversial. So there's no effect on the effect on the rate of high-grade dysplasia or, or soft adenocarcinoma for those on low or high-dose PPI plus or minus aspirin. Um, but if you look at the um, of cancer and overall mortality, there was a small effect. And there's some evidence that statins can reduce the risk. So I think the main 
point about PPIs is that they help the symptoms of heartburn, but it's not conclusive that it's a chemo preventive. So I think really the, the medication, and this is, I think, the widespread view of gastroenterologists, use the medication to control the symptoms, and then patients should be having surveillance to detect early disease and to treat it, rather than thinking that if you take an aspirin a day or something, that's going to be a good chemo prevention. You don't need any follow-up. So PPIs to treat the symptoms and surveillance. So the endoscopic surveillance, we look, have a good look. Um, and we take biopsies of any areas that look suspicious. And then otherwise we take biopsies according to the Seattle protocol. So developed in Seattle, we take four biopsies every two centimeters of the Barrett's because it's quite heterogeneous. So we have to try and take a good sample. And the length, length of the segment does matter. So the longer your Barrett's, the higher your risk of cancer. And we now, it should always be reported on your Barrett's um, endoscopy reports. Two lengths are given, the circumferential lengths, so that's from the gastroesophageal junction, the extent of the Barrett's, which is involving the whole circumference of the esophagus, and a maximal extent, which is the highest um, level of any tongues of Barrett's esophagus. So C3M6 would be three centimetres of circumferential Barrett's and six centimetres in its maximal extent. Patients with 10 centimetres or more have really quite... Um, high annual risks of cancer up to 20% and um, many places will centralize their surveillance of these long segments. So the treatment of dysplasia and early cancer, um, I mentioned this already briefly, but we can use um, endoscopic treatment to remove any visible lesions with EMR and ESD. So that's a sort of uh, large biopsy, if you like, so remove the area. And then any remaining Barrett's will ablate, generally speaking, using radiofrequency ablation, but other ablation techniques include things like cryotherapy and argon plasma. Um, why endoscopic therapy? Well, you want to avoid esophagectomy if you can, because um, you know, if you keep your esophagus, your quality of life long term is much improved. Um, there are there is mortality associated with um esophagectomy. I think the last national UK audit is more like 4% than 4.5%, but there are also complications and, and morbidity as well as mortality. So if you can get away with endoscopic therapy, that's definitely an advantage. And the evidence for using um, radiofrequency ablation to ablate the high grade, which is flat um, or low grade, in other words, you've removed any visible lesions with the EMR, is really excellent. So the data is all on here, but basically there's randomized controlled trial evidence against a sham um, to show that it's really good at getting rid of the dysplasia, pretty good at getting rid of the Barrett's. It's durable at three years. And we've got a UK register of over 700 patients. Um, there's also randomized data for using it in the low-grade setting. So we're very comfortable with using radiofrequency ablation for patients with dysplasia, and it's very well tolerated. So in the last um, part of the talk, I just want to talk a bit more about screening and some new technologies, because this is quite um, a you know, rapid evolving area. So by screening, I mean a proactive invitation to patients who might otherwise be undiagnosed with their Barrett's esophagus. So while endoscopy is a very good test, particularly for patients um, who we suspect have cancer, if we want to really start doing proactive screening on a larger scale, I think we'd all agree we need simpler, less invasive tests so that we can have a, a sort of a large funnel and triage patients through to endoscopy who really need it. It also means if you're seeing patients in your practice and you're thinking, you know, I wonder if I should refer this patient, it's just a bit of heartburn, 
maybe they don't quite reach the threshold. If you had a simpler test to offer them, then that would be good. Um, and that will help you know who you need to endoscope. So what um, kind of techniques do we have available? Well, there's unsedated transnasal endoscopy, which is pretty good. It's been around quite a while. Um, but actually, you still need the skilled operator and the hardware that you need for, for pretty standard endoscopy. Um, you can do it in a community setting. Um, because it's a much slimmer endoscope to pass through the nose, it means that if you're going to take biopsies, the biopsies will be smaller than the standard per oral endoscopy. So I think this is a good test if you have it available to you in your community. Um, but it's not much different in terms of the user skill required and the cost than a standard endoscopy. Um, so I think that's why we need something even simpler to really think about mass screening. So there are lots of other emerging technologies which are non-endoscopic. So um, breath testing, blood biomarkers, um, non-endoscopic imaging techniques, so that's capsule cameras, and then non-endoscopic esophageal sampling devices, um, which have got furthest in terms of um, being evaluated in randomized trials. So with any screening test, there are a number of characteristics we have to consider. It needs to be safe, acceptable, easy to administer. Um, it needs to be clinically feasible, reproducible, and so on. Um, in terms of the characteristics of the test, for screening, we want to really maximize specificity because we don't want lots of false positives. This is a bit, bit different from a diagnostic test where you really want to maximize sensitivity. And we do need to consider the accessibility and the costs as soon as we start thinking about screening, because as you all well know, one of the issues about screening is often the people who are the worried, um, highly educated, privileged people will come and get all the screening tests and they're at low risk and we don't get it to those that really need it. So there's a lot of excitement about um, blood biomarkers in general. So you may well be familiar with multi-cancer early detection tests, which are suddenly on the horizon. This is um, very much a you know, evolving space. Apparently there are over well over 50 companies now working on multi-cancer early detection tests. Um, the data I've shown here is from Grail, and they've been doing the um, using their tests in the NHS gallery trial, which you may be familiar with, and their technology is one of the most mature. And it aims to detect up to 50 types of cancer. So this isn't specific for esophagus, it's for 50 types of cancer. Now, they have tuned their biomarkers to be very highly specific to minimize false positives, which, as I said, is the thing to do. But with the current characteristics of these tests, it means that it's highly specific, but not very sensitive. So to get their level of specificity above 99 percent, they've com compromised on the sensitivity, which overall across all cancer types, for the GRAIL test is 51.5 percent. Now, if we look at sensitivity on this rank here, Esophagus is 85% overall, which sounds pretty good. But when you look at the, um, this is a validation of their technology with fixed thresholds. When you look at the stage of disease it's detecting, brilliant for stage four, but only 12.5% sensitivity for stage one, which is the stage we need to get it for endoscopic therapy. Now, you can imagine that it's likely that much more, this relies on DNA being shed into the blood, and it's much more likely that DNA will be shed into the blood for an advanced tumour than for an early stage tumour. And if you get to precancerous stages, Barrett's, 
it's not clear that really much material at all is shed from varus into the blood because you've got an intact epithelium and intact basement membrane. So I think these technologies are very good for established cancers. Hopefully we'll be able to pick up some stage two and that sensitivity will improve a bit. But I think for um, a multi-cancer early detection test to really be good as a screening modality for Barrett's or stage one, maybe pushing it, but we'll see how it all evolves. The other thing with multi-cancer early detection tests is because it's across multiple cancers, you then have to follow it up with some kind of follow-on test or imaging test to know where the cancers come from. Um, some of these tests give you quite a good idea where it may have come from. Um, but they vary in their specificity. So often a, a whole body imaging test is recommended first before you then go into the particular um, target organ. So that's another potential downside because you've got to then go and look and see where the signal has come from. Um, another approach would be to take a cell sample directly from the esophagus. So the, the good thing about the esophagus is it's quite accessible compared to some other organs. So rather than relying on a blood or a breath test, we could just collect cells directly from the esophagus and then assay them. And so this is a technology that, um, disclaimer here, I've developed in my lab um, and now spun out to Cited um, to do the lab testing. Um, so this is very simple test, very easy to do. I'm gonna collect cells, send it to the lab and then measure the assay. Um, and because we know cells are collected from the esophagus, we know where the signal has come from. So this is compared to endoscopy. It's a very straightforward test. It takes um, 10 minutes to do in its entirety. You swallow the capsule down, it expands to a sponge, and you then extract it and collect cells. There's no imaging with this technology, so it's a blind panesophageal sampling. So here is a little cartoon just to show you how it works. Um, so um, this is the Medtronic cytosponge. We license it to Medtronic. So here's the capsule in the stomach um, dissolving and the compressed sponge within that capsule will pop out and then the nurse will retrieve it um, five minutes later, five to seven minutes later, and it's going to collect cells from the top of the stomach, the gastric cardiac, along the whole length of the esophagus. And within the sponge mesh, you kind of grab um, clusters of cells, which will be mainly squamous esophagus and any Barrett's if it's there. So super simple for um, patients to do. And we spin the cells down and we process it to a sort of pseudobiopsy that we can then analyze um, using cytology and immunohistochemistry markers um, and can then be looked at by a pathologist. So you can see in this cytosponge cell specimen that we have got clumps of normal healthy squamous esophagus. Um, we've got gastric cells. So that tells us that's a quality control that it went into the stomach. And then this is a group of Barrett's with the goblet cells. Now, you get a lot of cells on this sample, 1 million to 4 million cells. And so it's important to make those Barrett cells really stand out so that we've got an objective, um, easy biomarker. So the biomarker that we've developed is called Trefoil Factor 3, which is very specific for the goblet cells. So we've done a lot of work um, to discover and validate this approach. This is the EDRN um, sort of requirements for different phases of studies for a um, screening test. So we've gone through a series of studies, exploratory, um, testing the clinical grade assay, then a pilot study in the primary care intended to screen population, which we published back in 2011. Then we did a case control study to look at the sensitivity and specificity. So this was a per protocol intention to treat analysis, 80% sensitive, 92% specific. And the longer the segment of Barrett's, the more likely you are to detect it. 
Um, and then we went on to do a randomized control trial of screening versus GP usual care. So by that, by usual care, we mean you prescribe acid suppressants and refer for an endoscopy if the GP was concerned. And the headline result from that phase four randomized control trial was that an offer of cytosponge, this is an intention to treat analysis, diagnosed 10 times more cases of Barrett's than GP usual care. And that was with a 24% participation rate in the screening test. So obviously, if we could get that participation rate up higher, then that rate ratio would probably increase even more. So there's a lot of undiagnosed Barrett's out there, I think is a key finding from this study. The cytosponge was very good at picking it up. 13% of patients had a positive result, TFF3 result, and were referred for endoscopy. And the positive predictive value for finding Barrett's or dysplasia or early cancer was 59%. This is a lady um, in Cambridge that was um, identified with an early cancer through this screening trial. So she had a positive cytosponge and endoscopy has an ulcerated six centimeter Barrett's with an early stage tumor that was resected by an endoscopic mucosal resection. Now, for this to become a nationwide screening um, modality, we would need to show not only we can detect more Barrett's, that we actually reduce cancer mortality um, in the at-risk population. And I should say the at-risk population here is people um, over 50 who've got a history of heartburn. So this is the trial we're about to do. This is a phase five trial. It will be starting in 2024. Um, we'll be randomizing across the UK, 120,000 individuals, two to one, usual care to cytosponge, um, males over 55, females over 65. We'll also be having a surveillance trial embedded within it. So this will really get us to the level of evidence to see if this could be a nationwide screening trial. Now, for just a few minutes before I finish, I think my time is pretty much up, just to say that um, we've also been doing cytosponge um, as a triage for people on endoscopy waiting lists. And this really came about because of COVID. So um, endoscopy rates, as you'll be familiar, during COVID were dramatically curtailed because of the um, diversion of the workforce, but also because of aerosol generation during endoscopy. And I got a call from the Scottish government to say, could Cytosponge help in this scenario? Um, so NHS Scotland adopted it, then NHS England. So this is people that GPs have referred for a routine endoscopy who are getting Cytosponge instead as a triage. And for people um, having Barrett surveillance to get Cytosponge as well as a triage. And there we have additional biomarkers that we add so we look for P53 and atypia for dysplasia. So um, this is being done as a certified accredited um, test. So it's processed by the cited lab, cited lab as a diagnostic lab using these biomarkers. So um, they get a you know, standard NHS consent form and NHS result. And since we started this during COVID, we have um, tested over 15,000 patients across over 60 hospitals and also some community-based clinics. So this is really an example of how COVID really accelerated an innovation and got it tested in the NHS context quicker. Um, and as I said, we're using it for symptomatic referrals. So on a routine reflux, on a routine endoscopy waiting list because they've got reflux, no alarm symptoms, and then for patients with known Barrett's on surveillance. So we were doing this in NHS England, NHS Scotland, and this is an analysis we've recently published of over 10,000 procedures. 
Um, this is an example who through this pilot, a lady who was um, found who knew she had Barrett's, her surveillance was delayed during COVID, but the cytosponge picked up some dysplastic cells and she went on and had an early cancer detected and resected. And what we found using this NHS pilot is we have been able to prioritize endoscopy in the 12.5% of patients with Barrett's who really needed it, whereas those with low risk features on their cytosponge could um, have a delayed endoscopy or another cytosponge. And also in people with reflux, we could divert about 12.5% of those to endoscopy who really needed it. And the rest, um, if the clinician was happy that their symptoms were controlled, were actually discharged. So overall, we managed to divert around 75% of patients from endoscopy waiting lists. So I think this was a really good result. And building on this, um, there's a new trial starting, which I thought you might be interested in because this is really a primary care-led trial of Cytosponge. Um, so this is being funded by NHS England and the SBRI project. It's an 18-month real-world service development with three cancer alliances um, in GPs and community diagnostic centres. And the idea is to identify and test just over 2,000 people at risk. So these are people with chronic reflux who otherwise wouldn't be getting a test and people with Barrett's who are going to have their test in the community rather than in secondary care. And we want to see if this is sustainable at a system level, both operationally and economically. So I think this is a very exciting study. So um, to conclude, um, in terms of earlier diagnosis, what might the future look like? So my hope is that we might be able to be more proactive to take the population at risk based on their symptoms and other risk factors to do a non-endoscopic triage test for Barrett's in the primary care or community hub. If they're found to have Barrett's, then monitor that, working in combination with secondary care and community hubs. And I hope that people at low risk could um, actually have a lot of their surveillance done in the, in the more community-based setting. And um, in both of these scenarios, we need to focus on really good biomarkers to help ascertain the people at high risk from those at low risk. And if we get this funnel right, then we can really do less endoscopy, but do more smart endoscopy on those who really need it using advanced imaging and endoscopic therapy for those in whom we find early disease. So to summarize, I think early diagnosis is key. And from a primary care point of view, can be improved by prompt referrals for alarm symptoms and also considering testing patients with persistent heartburn and other risk factors. I think we're going to have a lot more tools available to us, non-endoscopic tools, things like cytosponge blood tests in primary care coming soon. If you have got patients with, diagnosed with Barrett's, they need reassurance that their risk, absolute risk of progression is low. Um, and they're in a way in the fortunate group who've had that diagnosis and we can keep an eye on them and are excellent endoscopic therapy tools available for early disease. For patients diagnosed with an invasive symptomatic esophageal cancer, unfortunately, the prognosis overall is core and the treatment is grueling required shared care between hospital and community but it is slowly improving but to really improve it I think we need to do more earlier diagnosis and with that I'd like just to thank Heartburn Cancer UK um, who suggested this talk um, so thank them very much they're celebrating their 20 years um, as a charity and they've been doing a lot of work to really um, help raise awareness and they also sponsored this mobile unit for use during COVID for cytosponge clinics. And I'm always happy to take questions. Um, you can contact me anytime by email. Thank you very much. 
Rebecca, thanks so much. That was really, really interesting. Um, uh, some gr great stuff. I, I, I was not really aware of the cyto sponge at all. Um, can so so if I just open up, um, has anybody got any questions you'd like to ask? Feel free to just turn your microphone on. Otherwise, I've otherwise I've got some. Um, Nelson or Jima, have you got any questions at all? Um, no, no question. Thank you for the presentation. <clears throat> Thanks, Nelson. Well, in that case, Rebecca, can I ask you a few questions then? Have you had the cytosponge? Have you tried it yourself? Oh, yeah. Um, What's it like? First one, and I've done it several times. So, I mean, we've now had overall in all our trials and in the NHS pilots about 20,000 procedures. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's very simple compared to an endoscopy so you don't have to go to an endoscopy room um, there's no sedation required there's no throat spray required you can swallow the tablet which is about the size of a multivitamin capsule it's tethered to a thread um, the whole thing is going to take 10 minutes so seven minutes to dissolve a few seconds to pull it out um, some people find the thread a little bit tickly in the back of the throat it didn't particularly bother me but some people do um, and um, as it was withdrawn, I found that a bit uncomfortable, but it was over very, very fast because the nurse pulls it out literally in a few seconds and it's gone. So this is a very fast test. So, and then I had a slight sore throat for a day afterwards, but nothing much. Um, and I think that's a pretty typical experience from the, all the feedback we get. So it sounds, sounds like, like, like in, the, in the olden days, you do tell you about, about people removing teeth, tie it to the doorpost and slam the door or something. It's almost, you could do, you could almost do, it, do it at home. And where do you see, obviously I'm joking there, obviously going forward, could you see this um, um, cytosponge test as something that we could be doing in our GP surgeries in the same way that we run smear clinics, do you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think, um, I mean, there's question about whether you'd train every single practice or whether it would be in kind of spoken hub type of models. So we're already doing it in community care. So our trials um, have been in community care. The current um, Cytoprime 2 project is based in community care. Um, we've been doing it in a mobile van as well outside of GP surgeries. Um, so it's designed as something that is very simple um, no special equipment. One person administers it. If you think you need three people doing endoscopy in the room, the person looking after the um, airway, the person delivering the endoscope and the nurse assisting with the forceps. This is one person in an office, which can be in any setting. Yeah, it, it sounds like um, it, it's it could sort of obviously show you it, in terms of being able to revolutionize the way we, we diagnose and make it um, um, so much more prevalent, much more out there to do. And that's the idea, because yeah. we know that most patients with Barrett's are never diagnosed, which is why we still have such generally late diagnosis at the time of the, the symptomatic cancer. Um, so, uh, yeah, the idea is to really change the paradigm, be testing more people, um, triaging them and then doing endoscopy on those that really need it. Fantastic. Oh, good. There's a question about H. pylori. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the reason it's protective is because it reduces the acid-secreting potential of the stomach. And acid reflux is the main risk factor for esophageal cancer. So if you have less acid in the stomach, then your reflux will be less acid acidic, and therefore you get less damage to the esophageal mucosa. Um, it's just for adenocarcinoma that it's protective where acid is the, is the risk factor. So the risk factors for squamous cell carcinoma are different. 
So alcohol is a risk factor for squamous cell carcinoma, not for adenocarcinoma, smoking for both. Um, and um, squamous cell cancer is very geographically located, so um, much more in Asia, um, affected by um, other micronutrients as well in the diet, smoking and chewing tobacco, very hot drinks, um, scalding temperature of drinks, um, particularly in Iran, for example, Turkmenistan is a risk factor. So those are the squamous risk factors. Adenocarcinoma is much more reflux, obesity, smoking. Lovely, thank you. And and can I can I just also ask? Obviously, you've been very pivotal in 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 this research and development. How how have you, as as a normal human being, how have you found that whole sort of um, process? Has it has it been quite straightforward? Have there been any blockers or barriers, or or how's it? How would you do it again? Do you have you lost sleep over it? I've lost a lot of sleep over it, but I'd do it again every time because I absolutely believe in it, and I I did it because I felt there was a problem that needed fixing. Has it been easy? No. Um, has it been worth it? Yes. Um, with anything, if you're doing something new, um, you know, there are a lot of un unanticipated challenges, the, the regulatory hurdles, the time taken to do the trials, the large scale trials that you need, how you then commercialize and get the technology out of your lab into general practice, how you um, how you overcome some of the kind of implementation and adoption barriers, because, you know, clinicians, um, in general, and I'm one, you know, we're try, quite conservative and tend to do the things that we know how to do, we're used to doing. So um, all of those things mean it takes time. But, um, you know, over a long period, seeing it start to um, be used more. And actually, the COVID was a fantastic opportunity for not just this, but, you know, for many things, thinking about how we could think a bit outside the box and get some new technologies um, into the clinic, I think was a very good um thing to see and very rewarding so um i'm still losing sleep over it but i still think it's worthwhile <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I think i think your book is going to be well worth reading when you publish it <laughs> uh, right rebecca thank you so much for that that's, that's been absolutely wonderful and um just like before we go i just want to quickly hand over to ellie who wants to talk about um the the next event ellie um, just while I've got people here, um, we've launched our July event today, which is going to be an accountancy event. So normally these are clinical, but we thought we would try a non-clinical topic. Um, and the link is there as per before. If you just um, drop your email in the form on the website, we'll send you a link on the day. Lovely. Thanks, Sally. And uh, thank you again, Rebecca, on behalf of everyone here and, and, and all our members um, who will be watching the video. So, so thank you so much. And thanks to everyone else who coming along. Enjoy the rest of your half term break and uh, see you at the next event, hopefully. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Rebecca. Bye bye now. Bye bye.